In the previous episode, we talked about how we can know and have confidence that God exists. But the difference between knowing that God exists and enjoying a relationship with God is a vast distance. Just believing in God doesn't explain why He seems so far away. The answer to that dilemma isn't a popular one these days. When we talk about sin, a lot of modern preconceptions come to mind. Ideas about guilt and shame, judgment and brokenness. But none of these terms really captures what the Bible says about sin, that power which separates us from God. It's that biblical definition of sin that J. Gressa Machen sets out to explain in this broadcast. And this isn't just an exercise in academic theology. Although it can be uncomfortable to dig deeper into the darkness of our hearts, there's hope. As we learn more about what sin is, we can begin to understand the real meaning of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. Chapter 33 What is Sin? We come now to a very momentous question. The question, what is sin? We have spoken about the first sin of man. Now we ask what sin at bottom is. Widely different answers have been given to this question, and with these different answers have gone different views of the world and of God and of human life. The true answer is to be obtained, as we shall see very clearly in the Bible. But before I present that true answer to you, I want to speak to you about one or two wrong answers, in order that by contrast with them, the true answer may be the more clearly understood. In the first place, many men have notions of sin which really deprive sin of all its distinctiveness, or rather, many men simply deny the existence of anything that can properly be called sin at all. According to a very widespread way of thinking in the unbelief of the present day, what we popularly call morality is simply the accumulated experience of the race as to the kind of conduct that leads to racial preservation and well-being. Tribes in which every man sought his own pleasure without regard to the welfare of his neighbors failed, it is said, in the struggle for existence, whereas those tribes that restrained the impulses of their members for the good of the whole prospered and multiplied. By a process of natural selection, therefore, according to this theory, it came more and more to be true that among the races of mankind, those that cultivated solidarity were the ones that survived. In the course of time, so the theory runs, the lowly origin of these social restraints was altogether lost from view, and they were felt to be rooted in something distinctive that came to be called morality or virtue. It is only in modern times that we have got behind the scenes and have discovered the ultimate identity between what we call morality and the self-interest of society. Such is a very widespread theory. According to that theory, sin is only another name, and a very unsatisfactory name too, for antisocial conduct. What shall we say of that notion of sin from the Christian point of view? The answer is surely quite plain. We must reject it very emphatically. Against you, you only have I sinned, says the psalmist, Psalm 51, 4. That is at the very heart of the Bible from beginning to end. Sin, according to the Bible, is not just conduct, 
that is contrary to the accumulated experience of the race. It is not just antisocial conduct, but it is an offense primarily against God. Equally destructive of any true idea of sin is the error of those who say that the end of all human conduct is, or as some of them say ought to be, pleasure. Sometimes the pleasure which is regarded as the goal to be set before man is the pleasure of the individual, refined and thoroughly respectable pleasure, no doubt, but still pleasure. Such a view has sometimes produced lives superficially decent, but even such superficial decency is not apt to be very lasting, and the degrading character of the philosophy underlying it is certain to make itself felt even on the surface sooner or later. Certainly, that philosophy can never have a place for any notion that, with any propriety at all, could be called a true notion of sin. Sometimes, it is true, the pleasure which is made the goal of human conduct is thought of as the pleasure, or, to use a more high-sounding word, the happiness, not of the individual, but of the race. According to that view, altruism, namely regard for the greatest happiness of the greatest number, is thought to be the sum total of morality. A little reflection will show how widespread and how influential this doctrine is. Examine, for example, some of the schemes of character education which are being proposed for use in public schools or elsewhere. What do they amount to? Well, I am afraid they amount to an appeal to human experience as the basis of morality. This is the kind of conduct, they say, in effect, which is found to work well. This is the kind of conduct, therefore, which good citizens ought to practice. What should the Christian say of such schemes of so-called character education? Well, I think he ought to oppose them with all his might. Far from building character, they undermine character in the long run, because they substitute human experience as the basis of morality for the law of God. The things that they advocate in detail are, indeed, in many cases, things that the Christian man also can advocate. Certainly the notion that the greatest happiness of the greatest number is the thing that should be put before us as the goal does produce in detail many maxims of conduct that coincide with what the Christian, on his very different basis, advocates. It is obvious that murder and theft and robbery are not conducive to the greatest happiness of the greatest number, and it is also obvious that they are contrary to the Christian standard. Therefore, the Christian and the non-Christian, though for very different reasons, can unite in telling people not to enter upon a life of crime. Nevertheless, the difference between Christian morality and the morality of the world is a very important difference indeed. For one thing, it is a difference even in details. Although there is a large area where the conduct advocated by modern utilitarians on the basis of their principle that the standard of morality is to be found in the experience of the race is exactly the same in detail as the conduct which is advocated by Christians, yet there are cases where the underlying difference of principle comes to the surface, even in differences in detail. Thus, we have seen in the newspapers recently a good deal of discussion about mercy killing or euthanasia. Certain physicians say very frankly that they think hopeless invalids, who never by any chance can be of use either to themselves or to anyone else, ought to be put painlessly out of the way. Are they right? 
Well, I dare say a fairly plausible case might be made out for them on the basis of utilitarian ethics. I am not quite sure, let me say in passing, that even on that basis it is a good case. This is a very dangerous business, this business of letting experts determine exactly what people never will be missed. For my part, I do not believe in the infallibility of experts, and I think the tyranny of experts is the worst and most dangerous tyranny that ever was devised. But, you see, that does not touch the real point. The real point is that the modern advocates of euthanasia are arguing the thing out on an entirely different basis from the basis on which the Christian argues it. They are arguing the question on the basis of what is useful, what produces happiness and avoids pain for the human race. The Christian argues it on the basis of definite divine commands. You shall not murder, Exodus 20.13, settles the matter for the Christian. From the Christian point of view, the physician who engages in a mercy killing is just a murderer. It may also turn out that his mercy killing is not really merciful in the long run, But that is not the point. The real point is that, be it ever so merciful, it is murder, and murder is sin. The views of sin that we have considered so far are obviously opposed to Christianity. No Christian can hold that morality is just the accumulated self-interest of the race, and that sin is merely conduct opposed to such self-interest. The Christian obviously must hold that righteousness is something quite distinct from happiness, and that sin is something quite distinct from folly. Other erroneous views of sin, however, are not so obviously erroneous, and not so obviously, even though just as truly, anti-Christian. There is, for example, the notion that sin is the triumph of the lower part of man's nature over the higher part, that it is the triumph of the appetites of the body over the human spirit, the human spirit, which ought to be that in man which rules. This definition appeals falsely, it is true, to certain biblical expressions, and it is a very ancient notion in the visible Christian church. In its extreme form, it represents matter as being in itself evil. The human soul or spirit is enclosed, it holds, in the prison house of the material world, and the goal of the soul's efforts should be to get free. Sin is everything that prevents that liberation of the soul from the material world. Obviously, such a doctrine is quite contrary to the Bible. It is a pagan notion, not a Christian notion. For one thing, it really does away with the Christian idea of God altogether. If matter is essentially evil, and if God is good, then God could not have created matter but matter must have existed always independently of him. So, it is not surprising to find that in the days of the ancient church, those who regarded matter as being essentially evil were dualists, not theists. That is, they did not believe in one God, creator of all things that exist, but they believed that there are two ultimately independent principles, a good principle, God, and an evil principle, matter. In marked contrast with all such views, the Bible teaches from beginning to end that the material world, like the world of spirits, was created by God, and that none of God's works is to be regarded as evil. 
Moreover, the Bible not only combats that view as a theory of the universe, but it also combats very earnestly the effects of it in human conduct. Those who regard matter as being essentially evil tend always to asceticism. They tend always, that is, to abstention from enjoyment of the good things of this world, as though such abstention were in itself a virtue, not a means to an end, but an end in itself. Not a thing necessary on occasion, but a thing always necessary if real sainthood is to be attained. To such asceticism, the Bible is everywhere opposed. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, said the ascetics, who were impairing the supremacy of Christ in the Colossian church, Colossians 2.21. Very vigorously does the Apostle Paul combat their teaching. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, he says also in another epistle, 1 Corinthians 10.26. So teaches the Bible from beginning to end. There is not a bit of support in Holy Scripture for the notion that the material world is essentially evil and that the enjoyment of it is sin. At this point, however, there may possibly be an objection. Does not the Bible repeatedly designate the flesh as an evil thing? And in doing so, does it not teach that sin consists, after all, in the triumph of man's lower or bodily nature over his higher nature? To that objection, we answer that certainly the Bible does repeatedly designate the flesh as an evil thing, but that the whole question is what it means in those passages by the flesh. Some people think that the word refers in those passages to the bodily nature of man, a lower part of his nature as over against a higher part. That view is presented in several of the recent translations of the Bible, better called mistranslations, which are leading so many people astray at the present time. One of those translations renders the word meaning the flesh in the eighth chapter of Romans as the physical nature. Another translates it as the animal nature. Do you see exactly where those translations lead? They lead to the view that the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, according to the epistles of Paul, is a conflict between the physical and the spiritual part of man's nature, and that the triumph of the physical or animal nature in the conflict is what the Bible calls sin. Is that view right? No, my friends, it is not right. On the contrary, it is a very deadly and far-reaching error. A man who holds that notion of sin has not the slightest inkling of what the Bible holds to be sin, and he is not apt, alas, to have the slightest inkling of what the Bible says about salvation from sin. It is perfectly true, of course, that in many places the Bible means by flesh simply a certain part of the bodily structure of man or animals. It speaks of flesh and blood, or the like. That is the simply physical sense of the word. Undoubtedly, it does occur in the Bible. But we are speaking now about those passages where the flesh is presented in the Bible as an evil thing. Does the word have its simply physical meaning in those passages? The answer is emphatically no. In those passages, the word is used in a very special sense indeed, a sense far removed from the original purely physical sense. In those passages, it designates not the physical nature of man or the animal nature of man, but the whole nature of man, as that nature is now in its fallen condition, separate from God, 
The principal stages by which the word flesh comes to have that meaning in the Bible seem to be fairly clear. First, the simple physical meaning. Then, flesh designating man in his weakness, all of him being designated by a word that properly designates the part of him in which his weakness is most clearly shown. As when the Bible says, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Isaiah 40, verse 6. Then, flesh designating man as he now is, lost in sin, as he now is until he is transformed by the Spirit of God. It is this third meaning of the word which is found in those great passages where the flesh is represented in the Bible as being an evil thing. And thus used, the word does not designate a lower part of man's nature as over against a higher part. It designates all of man's nature in its present sinful state as over against the divine holiness. It does not designate the body of man as over against the spirit of man, but it designates the whole of man as over against the spirit of God. That appears with particular clearness in such a passage as 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3 where Paul says, according to the King James Version, For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? The word translated carnal here comes from the word for flesh. It might just as well be translated fleshly. Well, what does it mean? The apostle tells us himself, Are ye not carnal and walk as as men, he says. Evidently being carnal or fleshly and walking as men are intended here to be taken as the same thing. One of these expressions explains the other. How ought the Corinthian Christians to walk? According to God. How do they actually walk? According to men. But walking according to men as distinguished from walking according to God is, Paul says, the same as being fleshly. Thus, the flesh does not mean, as those sadly mistaken translations of the Bible make it mean, the animal nature of man as distinguished from some higher part of his nature. It means simply all of human nature, that is, human nature as it now is, under the control of sin, as distinguished from the Spirit of God. Paul makes the thing even clearer in the following verse. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? 1 Corinthians 3.4 Here the apostle treats being men, that is, being merely men, and not transformed by the Spirit of God, actually as a thing worthy of blame, and as just the same thing as being fleshly. Are ye not carnal? He says in verse 3. Are you not being merely human? He says in verse 4. The two mean the same thing, and they both mean being controlled or acting as though one were controlled simply by one's fallen human nature, as distinguished from being controlled by the Spirit of God. What a gulf there is between this biblical way of regarding fallen human nature and the modern paganism, proclaimed by so many preachers of the present day, which actually takes as a leading article in its creed the words, I believe in man. What a gulf there is between the modern pagan confidence in human resources and the teaching of the Bible, which makes the question, are ye not men, the same thing as are ye not carnal, and treats both questions 
as bringing a terrible reproach to Christian people. Thus, sin, according to the Bible, is not just the brute in us. No, it is very much more serious than that. Alas, sin is not the brute in us. It is, rather, the man in us. It is the man in us because the whole man, spirit or soul just as much as body, is sold under sin until transformed by the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. Certainly, the Bible does teach that sin sits in our bodies, that it makes our bodies its instruments, and that uncontrolled bodily appetites constitute a very large part of the occasion for our falling. All that is perfectly true, but that is very different indeed from saying that bodily appetites constitute the essence of sin. No, when the Bible gives us one of those terrible lists of sins that occur, for example, here and there in the epistles of Paul, when it catalogs, as in the fifth chapter of Galatians, the works of the flesh, Galatians 5:19 through 21 it includes not only what we are accustomed to speak of as fleshly sins, but also, and very prominently, sins such as pride and hatred, which are not, in our sense, sins of the flesh at all. Indeed, those sins of pride and the like, and not what we call fleshly sins, are just the sins that Paul is speaking of in that passage in 1 Corinthians when he charges his readers with being fleshly. The Bible finds sin, moreover, in a world of spirits. It speaks of spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12, as it finds sin, alas, in the spirit of fallen man. If we want to be true to the Bible, we must get rid of this whole notion that the essence of sin is found in the rebellion of a lower part of our nature against a higher part. What then is sin? We have said what it is not. Now we ought to say what it is. Fortunately, we do not have to search very long in the Bible to find the answer to that question. The Bible gives the answer right at the beginning in the account that it gives of the very first sin of man, that account which we studied together in the previous one of these little talks. What was that first sin of man according to the Bible? Was it the gratification of a bodily appetite? Yes, it was that. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, we are told. But was the sin merely the gratification of a bodily appetite? Most certainly not. No, it was a highly intellectual, spiritual thing. The serpent said that the eating of the fruit of that tree would make man wise. That part of it was not a bodily appetite at all. What then was that first sin of man? Is not the answer perfectly clear? Why, it was disobedience to a command of God. God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, Genesis 3.3. Man ate of the fruit of the tree, and that was sin. There we have our definition of sin at last. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Westminster Shorter Catechism, Question and Answer 14. Those are the words of the Shorter Catechism, not the Bible, but they are true to what the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation. I hope that you enjoyed this chapter of Things Unseen. If you'd like to read all 50 of these little talks, you can get a great deal on the book through Westminster Bookstore. 
From now until the end of November, listeners to this podcast can get 60% off the hardcover edition of Things Unseen by J. Gresham Machen. The book also includes new essays by Sinclair Ferguson, Tim Keller, Stephen Nichols, and Richard B. Gaffin, Jr. Visit wtsbooks.com slash things unseen to order your copy today. This podcast is a production of Westminster Seminary Press and includes selections from the book Things Unseen by J. Gressa Machen, as read by Pierce Hibbs, hosted by David Brionis, audio captured by Nick Hoffmeister, produced by Jimmy Atkins and Josh Curry. Thank you for listening.